Let's open our Bibles first of all to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then we'll go back to Matthew 27. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, verse 1. <clears throat> I referred to this last time. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, and now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. And this is the simple gospel message, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, number one. That he was buried, number two, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, number three. He died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. We're, we're looking, last week we looked at the death of Jesus, that it was unlike any other death, and, and, that, <clears throat> and, and today we're going to talk about number two, the burial of Jesus, and next week we're going to have Easter again and talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But, but just uh, in review of the, of the death of Jesus, that it was unlike any other, but Jesus, it says, by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. He tasted death. He went through death. It says in Romans 4, he was delivered over to death for our sins. In Romans 5, it says that we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. This death of Jesus was just, you know, unlike any other death and, and that which it accomplished. The darkness, you remember those, those three hours of darkness where the separation was there, the horror was there, the horrors of hell were there. And at the end of that time when he, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it says that he gave up his spirit. He gave it up. He laid down his life for us. And at that moment in time, it says that the curtain, the veil, was torn in two from top to bottom so that you and I would have access into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. We saw the miracles that occurred there too. The, the, the darkness, I've mentioned, the tearing of the veil, and then there was an earthquake at that precise moment. And then there was the resurrection of many, it says, came out of the graves after that earthquake, they came out of their tombs and they went and, and at Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and, and people saw them. And the fifth miracle was when the centurion who was there, he said those words, surely he was the son of God as he watched all this take place. Surely he was the son of God. And finally, this is my finally from last week. Not the finally for today. I know some of you want those donuts and the hay ride. Some of you want to get out there. I know that. But finally, the women, they were there. The women, they were there. The disciples, maybe John was still there, but, but the other disciples, it says they had all forsaken him. They had fled, but the women were still there. These courageous women. They loved and cared for Jesus, it says, and they were witnesses of his death and of his burial, and of his resurrection, these women. And, and uh, what an encouragement that is to, to look at the lives of these who, who no matter what, they were going to follow. They were going to be there. They were going to do what they needed to do. 
Today, the burial of Jesus, you know, often, as with many other passages, we just read over it and we acknowledge it. Okay, yeah, he was buried. They buried him. Okay. But it's, it's much more than that. And when we look at these verses, there's so much more that is there that you and I can see when we, when we open up the word, when we dig into what the verses say what they mean, and then how they apply to our lives. First of all, let's look at verse 57. It says, as, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea. Say, well, he was kind of important. He was, he was a rich man. What do we know about him? The town he was from, uh, was about 20 miles from Jerusalem, which wasn't that close, but he was there. And Mark tells us that he was a prominent member of the council or the Sanhedrin. Now, you remember who decided that Jesus was going to be put to death, right? The Sanhedrin, right? The, the Jewish ruling council said he must die, he's got to die, because he, he you know, put himself forward as the Son of God, as God. So Joseph of Arimathea was a member of that Sanhedrin. However, Luke tells us that he had not consented to their decision and their action. He didn't go along with it. He didn't agree with it. Now, we don't know how that happened. It doesn't say. Perhaps he wasn't there. He abstained. He didn't go when they were all in the midst of this frenzy. Because when you read about it, it's most likely he wasn't there because it says they, they all, all those who were there, consented that he had to be put to death. But Luke also tells us he was a good and, a, and an upright man. And Matthew here is now telling us, he's telling us that he had become a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus. This is a guy, again, he, he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't just a member, but he was a, 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 one of their leaders. He was prominent, and the one that they decided had to die, he had become a disciple of this man. A disciple of Jesus. What is a disciple? Anybody know? A follower. Ultimately, in, in a simplest word, is a follower. A follower of Jesus. And... and he had become this disciple of Jesus. He was born again, I believe, by the Spirit of God, by faith, by trusting in Jesus. Mark also tells us that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. So he had this faith that was looking ahead to what God was going to do. He followed Jesus and he was looking ahead to what God was going to do because that's what disciples do. Now, one thing I want to mention here, though, is something some of you probably already are thinking this is that John tells us about Joseph, that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. He was a secret disciple. So up to this point in time, he was a follower, but, but it wasn't like everybody knew. Those other members of the Sanhedrin probably did not know. He was secretly following Jesus. But, now, no longer. Something happened here, right? 
he steps up now. He steps up to the plate big time right now. And, and, and now uh, there, there's no turning back for this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. He cannot go back to being a secret disciple. He realized that he needed to do what he needed to do, come out and, and, and let the world know that he was a disciple or follower of Jesus and he loved Jesus Christ. How many of us are in that place where we're just secret disciples? Nobody knows. Do, do your family know? That you're a Jesus freak? Are you a Jesus freak? Does your family know that, that you, uh, you, know, you disappear and go somewhere on Sunday mornings? Or they think you're just down at the, you know, the Dunkin' Donuts, you know, having a double-double, extra-extra, whatever those things are. That's what we all need before church. And they don't know where you are. And you just kind of disappear every week. He'd been a secret disciple, but something happened, and now it was his time. And I'm not saying that we all need to go, you know, blasting everybody around us, but there's something that came out in his life, and I think needs to come out in our lives sometimes too, especially with our family members and those around us. Now, part of the reason that we don't sometimes is that we, you know, we know our own hearts and we know our lives and we're not living perfect lives. And we think, how can I say anything about Jesus when, I, when my life is a mess and I'm a mess and I'm a, you know, a sinner? Well, that's why we need to let him know that Jesus is the Savior and he died for my sins and he was buried and he rose from the dead that I might have life. It's all based on what he did, not, what on I, not, not on what I do. So this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, we, you know, this is the only time we, we hear about him is at this, as, at this juncture in the life of Jesus and the, at the, after the cross, after the death of Jesus. Verse 58, it says, He went to Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Mark tells us that he went boldly to Pilate. He went boldly. He didn't just go up and you know, sneak in. No, again, there was, a, there was something that changed in his life where he said, you know what, I'm going I'm to live for Jesus. I don't care who knows about it. He went boldly to Pilate. He asked for Jesus' body. This secret disciple, now he's boldly stepping out. What happened? What brought him to this place? What changed inside of him? What made him say, you know what, I don't care anymore? Because I think we need to get to that place where we don't really care anymore. And I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm talking about just being real. That I, I, have a, I serve a risen Savior and He's my Lord. He's my Savior and, and I do pray and, and I'll pray for you. You're having a hard time. Can I pray for you? I'll pray for you. There was some urgency. We read in verse 57 that evening was approaching and there was some urgency to get Jesus' body down before the Sabbath began. Right? He died at 3 o'clock and the Sabbath began at 6. It began at sundown and went to the sundown of the next day. There was some urgency, but I think there was, that it was more than that. It was just time. And th this was his opportunity. And sometimes, you know, our lives are like that. And, and, and then when the, the time, you know... Uh, Everything kind of lines up and, and, and the time is just right for us. And, and, and we know and, and we know that we need to step out and be who God called us to be. Maybe 
Maybe it's a time of, of tragedy. Maybe it's a time when, when you know, uh, some very difficult circumstances around us or in the people's lives around us, it, you know, that, that, that bring us to that place. But this was his opportunity to show Jesus his love. One man said it was at great personal cost. Great personal cost. This guy was one of the Sanhedrin, one of the ones that sent Jesus to that cross. One commentator says this, in a real sense, Joseph buried himself economically, socially, and religiously when he buried the body of Jesus. This act separated himself forever from the establishment that killed the Lord Jesus. There was no turning back for him. Economically, socially, religiously, he buried Jesus, but he really buried himself in all those areas. He didn't care. I'm going to do what I need to do, what I can do, you see. He had the means to do it at this particular juncture of time. Now, it says here that Pilate ordered uh, the, that the body be given to him. And I want you to notice here, it talks about the body of Jesus. And that's something you need to know. We'll talk about that in a second. But Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Now, Pilate, it says in Mark 15, he was surprised to hear that, that Jesus was already dead because usually it would take longer for them to die. And so he, he summoned, it says, the, he summoned the centurion and he asked the centurion if Jesus had already died. He wanted to be sure. And it says, when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. The centurion, the one who said, surely this was the son of God. He saw him die. He knew he was dead. He saw all the things that had happened to him. The spear that went into his side, he, the, the nails, the, the, him crying out and breathing his last breath. But Pilate, he had to be sure that he was dead or people would just come away and take bodies, people away before they were dead. Oh yeah, he's dead and they'd take him away and then they would take them somewhere else. So Pilate had to be sure. This is important. I want you to get this point. It was important. He had to be sure that Jesus was actually dead before he could release that body to him. So Joseph took the body, verse 59. He took the body, the body that was Jesus who had died. And he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He wrapped it in this clean linen cloth. John tells us that he was accompanied by Nicodemus. You all know the story of Nicodemus, right? John chapter 3. And Nicodemus is there. And he had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. It tells us in John chapter 3. He came to Jesus at night. And, and we don't know for sure. Why did he come at night? Some think maybe he was also a secret follower of Jesus. Others think perhaps it was just because Jesus would have a little more free time for him if he came to him at night. And he had some very important questions as you, you can read about in John chapter 3. He told Jesus, you know, he talked to Jesus and, and uh, Jesus told him, you must be born again. But now, but now, these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, they both came boldly. They, they came uh, 
Mark tells us that Joseph bought some linen cloth. Joseph went and bought this cloth. Nicodemus, it says he brought about 75 pounds of spices, myrrh and aloes. 75 pounds. Now, this stuff is not cheap. And again, at great personal cost, they're coming to show their love, their affection, their dedication to Jesus Christ. They're willing to put themselves on the line, whatever they owned, whatever they had. Is that true of you and I? Again, we dig into the scripture. What does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply? So many times we just skip that step out. Oh, that's interesting. He gave a lot. But how does it apply to me? Does it apply to me at all? Does this apply to me? Did the example of a guy like Joseph, a guy like Nicodemus apply to me? Or am I holding on to all my stuff and I, it's my stuff? Or am I willing to help people? Am I willing to, to serve? Am I willing to give of my time and my treasures? As these certainly did. They're willing to step up and do whatever it took. They both came boldly. It says the two wrapped, their, they wrapped the body of Jesus. The two of them wrapped it with the spices. It tells us in John 19, in strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. They gave Jesus a proper burial is what they did. They did what they could. They gave of themselves. They gave of their resources to, that Jesus would have a proper burial. In verse 60, what does it say there? Joseph took the body, excuse me, verse 60, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. He placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. Again, he gave. He gave what he had. You could say, well, you know, I need that. I'm going to die someday. I need that tomb. Of course, Jesus was only going to be in there for just a few days, so, you know, he's going to give it back. But, but Joseph didn't, you know, wasn't totally aware of that. Obviously, he might have heard, as we'll see, that the, uh, the rest of the Sanhedrin are pretty worried about that. But he gave it to Jesus, his own tomb, his own place of burial, his own place of death. And he fulfilled... The passage in Isaiah that says he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Isaiah 53, verse 9. He fulfilled the scripture. John tells us at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. This garden was there. This tomb was there. Makes me wonder and think about, I don't know, is that picture still there? Is that, is that picture there? Can you pop that up there for me, please? There are two, there are two um, places that they say could be where Jesus was buried, where the tomb was. One is called the Garden Tomb. How many of you have been to Israel? Two over here. One over there. You haven't been there. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking of a tour. But uh, <clears throat> there's a place called the Garden Tomb. 
And then there's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I couldn't think of the name of that a few weeks back. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And either one, according to the, the descriptions of exactly where it was and how it was set up, could be the place. Right now, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is within the city wall, but the city was smaller before. And so it would have been outside the city wall, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. However, when you go to these two different places, you know, it might have been the, at the location where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, but it's nothing like what the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is like, I have to tell you. You go into that place and, it's, and what they, you know, they, they say, well, this is where it could be, and then they, build, they start building up all these things around it, and, and altars and, and, and uh, you know, giant you know, uh, stuff. And, and this giant church is over this spot where this could have been. And then there's this little spot and they crawl down there. And it's, I'm not saying that it might not be at that spot, but it's nothing like what that is, let me tell you. In fact, you go into that place and, and it's, it's dark in there. It's very dark in there. And that, well, maybe that is, you know, kind of like the way it was. But when I go over to the garden tomb and you see this place, which is, this is more like what I think it really was, a, a tomb cut out of the stone. That's what it is. And that's, that's all stone there. It's all crumbled where they had to put those, those blocks in uh, to the right side of the opening of the door. But that's just all stone. And when you go inside there, it's all stone. It's been chiseled out. It's been, you know... Uh, cut out. And then, and then in front of you, if you see that little ridge there, in, 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 there's like a channel there. And uh, there would be a very large round stone that would be in that channel that they would then push in front of the door. Okay? And there's no way that someone from inside could ever move that giant round, I should have brought a picture of that, that giant round stone in front of the door. You can't do it. You'd have to be at the outside to be able to push that Stone, you see. There's a beautiful garden at the garden tomb. And also from the site of the garden tomb, you can look to the face of, of the, the cliff that, that is starting to deteriorate now, but you can see what it looks like a skull right to the, to the right of that uh, area called the garden tomb. Spurgeon, the great preacher from England, said these words. He says, it was a new tomb where no remains had been previously laid. And thus, if he came forth from it, there would be no suspicion that another had risen. No one else had ever died in there. It wasn't like one body in there and you put Jesus in and the other guy's in there hiding and, you know, comes out or whatever. Nor could it be imagined that he rose through touching some old prophet's bones as he did who was laid in Elisha's grave, right? Remember the story of Elisha? They put someone in, a, in his grave and the guy like rose from the dead. It's nothing like that. Nobody had ever been in there before. And Jesus was put into that tomb. Verse 60, uh, 62 Excuse me, verse 61, I have my numbers backwards here, it says 16. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Again, 
Mark says they saw where he was laid. Luke says they followed Joseph and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. They were there. Again, we've already mentioned, I've already talked about the women were there. They were there now as well. They followed through to the very end. They followed Joseph. They saw the tomb. They saw how his body was laid in it. They were witnesses. These courageous women. Luke tells us that they... They then went home and they prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. These were women of courage, but they were also women of obedience to the commandment, to the word of God. What an example. Verse 62, the next day, the one after preparation day, which was the preparation for the Sabbath, which I mentioned, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went to Pilate. Now they're going to Pilate after what Joseph Joseph and Nicodemus had done. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body. And tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. All of a sudden, they're all respectful to Pilate. A little bit of, um, you know, things don't quite add up here. It's interesting, though, they remember about what Jesus said. And they, they had twisted those words before, if you recall. They talked about him, you know, you know destroying the temple. Right, and after three days rebuild it, and they, they said he's going to destroy the temple, and he wasn't. And now they've kind of got it more right that he's saying, wait, he was saying he was going to rise from the dead. So we got to do something to make sure that that does not happen. But they remembered. But I wonder, and we I've looked at this before, this idea that the disciples didn't seem to remember, even though Jesus had told them repeatedly like three times at least that, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to, be, I'm going to suffer many things, Matthew 16, he says, at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, then I must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And at that point in time was when, if you recall, Peter took Jesus aside and he said, wait a minute, Jesus. No, he says he began to rebuke Jesus. And what did Jesus say to Peter? called him Satan. Shouldn't rebuke Jesus. But these members of the Sanhedrin, again, they said, listen, this is what he said. They called him a deceiver, but he said, I I really wonder if they really were afraid that it was true. They really feared that it was true. And they were wanting to do whatever they could to stop it. I mean, when they, you know, they hated Jesus. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. But, but any thinking person knew all the things that Jesus had been doing. It was, you know, it was common knowledge. All the miracles that he had done. Uh, you know, the raising of Lazarus. All these things that, that Jesus had done. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body. They call it a body. 
They, didn't, they knew he wasn't alive. Verse 64, we read it, and there would be this great deception. And they're all worrying about a deception. They call Jesus a deceiver, and then that, that his disciples might perpetrate a deception. But in the end, they are the ones who perpetrate a deception. In, in chapter 28, they perpetrate the deception. They go to the guards and say, listen, this is what we want you to say. And we're going to make sure you say that, pay you whatever we need to do, so you say what, what we tell you to say. And that kind of deception has been going on ever since, avoiding, denying the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus wasn't the deceiver. He was always telling the truth. But Satan, the devil, is the father of what? Father of lies, you see. And Jesus in John 8 tells them that, that you are of your father, the devil. He, tell, he told those religious leaders, and they said, whoa, wait a minute, our father is Abraham. No, no. Deception, lying. Verse 65 and 66, take a guard, Pilate answered, go, make the tomb as secure as you know, you know how. And so they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Make it as secure as you know how. Well, you know what human know-how? Ain't going to know-how stop the resurrection of Jesus, let me tell you. We, we, we can do some things, but that's where we, we have to understand that He is God. and We are people. He's the creator. We are the created beings. Warren Wearsby said this, they were making it impossible for anyone, friend or foe, to steal the body. And without realizing that the Jewish leaders and the Roman government, they joined forces to help prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They actually made it more obvious that it was a resurrection because they made it more harder, impossible for anybody to come and steal the body. Like man could stop the resurrection anyways. It says in Acts chapter 2, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You can't stop God. You can't fight against God. They couldn't stop the, re the resurrection. We can't stop God in our own lives. We, we try. They tried. You and I try sometimes, but we... we how are we going to stop God from doing what God is going to do? Better for us to surrender and submit and go along with his plan instead of fighting against it. Paul the Apostle was fighting against God's plan in his life, wasn't he not? God said, listen, I got a plan for you and, and you're going to be, this is what you're going to do. He laid it all out for him. Let me just close with some important points from, again, from uh, James Montgomery Boyce from uh, church in Philadelphia who's now gone on to be with Jesus. He says why the burial is important. Number one is that the burial proves that Jesus was really dead. If he was not really dead, there would be no need for resurrection, right? He was dead. The body was taken down. It was prepared. It was buried. There's no such thing as a swoon theory. There's a, you know, some ridiculous idea of a swoon theory that he you know, he wasn't really dead. He was just kind of like comatose. And then when they put him in the tomb, it was kind of cool in there. And he kind of just, it revived him. No. 
he was dead. Secondly, the details they fulfilled scripture in Isaiah 15.3.9, which I mentioned already. And thirdly, that there is some significance to this idea of the burial of Jesus for you and for me. Jesus endured the suffering before the cross. He endured the cross itself. He died. He faced the grave all for us. And it says in Romans, I want you to turn there with me and we'll close there. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. This is pretty interesting. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And of course, you have to read the whole chapter. Um, kind of, there's a lot. There's so much here about about this. But it says in verse four, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. There is something about the burial of Jesus that, as you and I identify with it, we died with him, we were buried with him. And we rise with him to live a new life. Boyce says these words. He says, in Romans, Paul speaks of Christians being buried with Jesus in his death, just as they are raised with him in his resurrection. He does this while discussing the Christian life, explaining why believers cannot continue in sin. Because we've been buried. Just like Jesus, he was dead, that the old man has died. He goes on to say, you have not only died to it, he says, you have been buried to it. And to go back to sin, sin once you have been joined to Christ is like digging up a dead body. That is not something we want to do. But that's just what it is. In other words, you and I, through the power of Jesus Christ, and this is not in our own strength in any way whatsoever, but as we, as we abide in Jesus, as we abide in Him, in, in His death and His burial and His resurrection, this gives us the power, the ability to live for Jesus Christ, to live a new life, not to just go out and live the same old way as before we became believers. Say, well, I can't do it. Well, you, you know, we all fall, we all make mistakes, but the power is there for you and I to live for Jesus. And it's found in His death and His burial and his resurrection through the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, you, not, not, you have not only died to it, you've been buried to it. Dead and buried to sin, we died with him, we were buried with him, and we rose with him to live a new life. The whole chapter is about living a new life. We got a new life all because of the Son. Let's pray together, shall we?